Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And before we get started today, Kyle, I just have one question. Can you build muscle and lose fat at the same time? Technically, yes. But in general, if you're gaining weight, even if you're not exercising, you'll gain some lean body mass. And if you're losing weight, you will lose lean body mass. So the holy grail of body recomposition is possible, but uh, there are tools that you need to deploy in order to do so. I'm excited to get into those tools. And you might've guessed it, today's discussion is around body composition and more specifically body recomposition. So we have a number of studies to go through and we kind of look at their training programs look at the time frame and look at the changes in lean body mass or body fat mass. So this is a question we get from people all the time. It's a, a common goal of our patients that they're working towards in their health span and longevity journey, optimizing amounts of visceral fat, body fat percent, and lean body mass, which we know all those things mm -hmm. are important for long-term health. So our first group here, uh, a lot of these studies are behind a paywall, but we will at least try to point out um, the method they used for measuring body composition, um, the time frame, and then what those changes were in a training protocol if we have access to it. Mm -hmm. So there's just a you know, conglomerate of studies here. The first one was essentially female soldiers in basic training. And what did we see from them? Yeah, this was quite interesting. So they took specifically female soldiers. The average body weight going in was about 130 pounds, I believe. Uh, that was 59 kilograms. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess average height was five, two and a half. So um, maybe a bit lower than expected for female soldiers. But then again, a lot of people that go into basic training are very young, still teenagers. So um, that's going to be a significantly lower amount of body mass in general than the general population. If you picked your average, you know, 35 year old female. But um, they looked at the changes and in 12 weeks they gained eight percent lean body mass that is great and also lost 12 percent body fat so they did achieve the uh, holy grail of body recomposition yeah and we don't know what their starting stats were i, I assume these people weren't excessively lean or excessively fat in terms of body fat percentage but if they were starting at let's say 100 pounds of lean mass they would yeah. end with 100 and you know, eight pounds of lean mass and losing about 10.2% of the body fat. That doesn't mean that they went from 30% body fat to 20% body fat, but if they had 30 pounds of fat they were carrying around, that they went to 27-ish pounds of fat. They lost 10% of the total fat mass. So we don't have a baseline because a lot of these things are behind a paywall and we can't see mm -hmm. them, but this does show that, and this was verified with DEXA scan, which is, you know, the gold standard. Um, We've joked about this, but my favorite way to measure my body composition is the method that gives me the best numbers. So whether that's calipers, bioimpedance. Bioimpedance. I like bioimpedance. Bod pod. Yeah, told me I was Dexa, 6% one time. I just picked my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Um, with DEXA, and again, it's not the most accurate. It, full body MRI would be slightly more accurate, but it's just not feasible to do for the average person. It's very expensive. And DEXA is kind of the next best thing. Again, my... A uh, friend, including childhood friend, uh, Grant Tinsley, is a PhD that studies body composition and has done um, lots of good research, including on bioimpedance, if that's one that you have to utilize. 
A couple other interesting takeaways I took from this first study is that um, the uh, females that went there were probably relatively untrained. So if I was going to basic training, I would want to be, you know, uh, as strong as possible and, uh, you know, relatively low body fat percentage as well. So they seemed uh, like surely with such a, a fast result like that, they got some newbie gains. Yeah, I would assume so. And then the other thing that kind of surprised me is just that they had um, quite low lean body mass. Maybe it's just my um, skewed perception of the military or maybe it's some of the people in the special operations community I think of with a whole lot of lean body mass, um, very fit individuals that um, the average person only weighed uh, 130 pounds. So uh, that being said, this was I think this was just general basic training. So not necessarily for um, heavy duty or even moderate duty. Um, of note, this is a teaser for a future episode. Um, for the last several years, the Gillette family and a lot of the uh, Gillette Health is kind of an extension of the Gillette family. We have done the Army Fitness Test, the ACFT, where you look at your various scores and it exposes some weaknesses or strengths in um, people's exercise regimen, a lot like uh, Andy Galpin's tests. So um, look forward to the future for that. Yeah, we all want to be well-rounded. You don't want to put, as we say, put all your skill points in you know one bucket and then you know, the power lifters aren't going to be the best at running the mile, right? Yep. And, and vice versa. So um, speaking of running miles, you know, going into our next group, this was interesting. And we tried to kind of categorize these as like trained individuals versus untrained because we'll get like if we just talked about studies on untrained individuals, people are like, well, what if I've been lifting for five years? You know, yep. people that are trained, they do have a little bit of a harder time adding more muscle mass or getting even more lean. So this was a group of untrained men and women. And what was really interesting here is that they looked at three groups. They had a resistance training group only, aerobic exercise training only, and then a combination of resistance training and aerobic exercise, which in, that sounds pretty good. in reality seems like really good programming. And that's probably what we should all be doing. Um, the compliance, this was actually a fairly long study. Uh, it was about 32 weeks long. And the resistance training arm specifically, they completed about 80% of their workouts with the aerobic training, it was a little bit higher. They were somewhere between 80 and 90% in terms of like completing these workouts. So three days a week, they exercise. So this is like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, they did three sets of eight to 12 reps and they used eight different machines. Mystery machines. Mystery machines. It's a, hmm. pr a proprietary blend. <laughs> so you don't know what you're getting here, but it, it doesn't sound like they were doing any um, compound movements with like barbells. So no deadlifts, no nope. squats, no incline bench press. They didn't mention the injury rate, so presumably relatively low, or maybe that was built in with the 80% compliance. So that's kind of interesting. But uh, what we saw is that it certainly worked. And if you compare it directly to aerobic exercise only, then it was likely a bit better from a standpoint of exactly what you would think, maintaining lean body mass. Yeah. The group that did only resistance training, they did gain a bit of weight and gained more lean body mass. We were talking a bit about the calculations used for this because supposedly during the study, everyone was eating 2000 calories, but this was a group of individuals, you know, about 50 years old and their BMI was about 30. So they, presumably they would have to eat substantially more calories to maintain or gain weight. 
And the weight didn't really change a whole lot. The biggest swing looks to be about, you know, three to four pounds mm-hmm. um, in the group that was doing only aerobic exercise. They actually lost the most weight, just slightly edging out the group that did aerobic and resistance training. But if you're doing both, you actually lose the largest amount of body fat, which is what most people care about as an endpoint. Correct. And that's another reason why, especially if you don't have a lot of weight to lose, it is more reasonable to go by something like a DEXA scan and only use the scale if it is deemed necessary between you and your dietitian and your doctor. Because the scale will essentially think that it will make you think that what you are doing is not working, even if you're losing more body fat, just because you are gaining lean body mass at the same time. So that's something to think about. The more normal your body fat percentage, the more normal your BMI, the more important it is to not overemphasize the scale. Yeah, because I would argue all of these people became substantially healthier in this 32-week period, but the biggest move on the scale was three or four pounds. So Mm -hmm. someone's like, oh, I've been at this for, that's eight months. It's like in eight months, I only lost three pounds, but that three pounds has an outsized effect on their health because they're trading, not literally, but essentially swapping a few pounds of fat for a few pounds of muscle. Mm -hmm. So like we said, to to summarize, resistance training alone increased lean body mass the most. Um, You did see a slight decrease in lean body mass with aerobic training only, but it's so insignificant. don't know that you could really call that much of a loss at all. It was less than, looks like less than a quarter of a kilogram. So less than half yeah. a pound. Essentially no change. So I um, guess running doesn't really burn muscle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it certainly doesn't put on muscle either. Another takeaway that we had from this, as we mentioned, we were discussing um, what would the compliance be? Do these people really develop a movement pastime to last a lifetime or do they just have compliance and they adhered to the regimen because it is a study and then did all of them stop it? Perhaps some of them kept doing it because doing it for 30 weeks, you could hopefully enjoy to like it in that time. And then we mentioned the 2000 calorie diet um, that probably did not happen. (laughs) Usually, and there is some variation, but usually if you are losing, if you were in a caloric deficit of more than about 200 calories a day, Well, one is that you're going to lose a whole lot of body weight. Two is that it is very difficult to put on lean body mass when you're losing more than about 200 calories a day. So this study in the previous one where there was that holy grail of body recomposition, um, it was likely 200, maybe 150, maybe 100 um, in the group that obviously uh, had essentially no weight change. Um, Then they obviously, obviously were not in a caloric deficit at all. All right. Next up, we have a study in trained men. So men who were already resistance training, they'd been lifting weights for a period of time. Uh, One thing that I noted about this was the training split. So it was really interesting to take a look at the exercise selection here. Uh, And essentially you could, this is like a circuit style training versus traditional strength training. And they were looking at like Um, how much strength was gained, how much lean body mass was gained, how much fat was lost. And just first impression, Kyle, what do you think of this split here? So they only picked six exercises to do for this entire, how long was this study period? So they only picked, was it 12 weeks? 
Let's just it was relatively short and they're using trained individuals. So let's say they're using the average gym bro. So I would think that uh, this is probably, you know, and I obviously know the results, but just looking at it at face value, uh, you would not think that this would be a very efficacious training split. The first three exercises, you only have 35 seconds of rest. So maybe call that CrossFit style. Supersets, superset. And the first one is knee flexion. First one is, or next one is bench press. All right, that's pretty good. Next one is ankle extension. So uh, I guess uh, maybe more of those individuals have bigger calves than we do. That's where most of us are lacking in lean body mass, I think. Yeah. So yeah, that's your first three exercises. So I, I think it's interesting that they started with knee flexion, which is a fancy way to say leg curl. Yeah. Um, and then follow that up with bench press. Presumably you would want to work from the largest muscle group to the smallest. Yep. Um, and then ankle extension. So like some sort of a calf raise of sorts, seated, standing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second set of exercises, because they did get a five minute rest between their two like working supersets. Yeah. They did lat pull down. Okay. Um, Pretty good. Important to do your lat pull downs before you do your squats. So they did lat pull downs, 35 seconds of rest, squats, 35 seconds of rest, and then elbow flexion. Elbow flexion. So curls of some sort. So they like their biceps and their calves. If you had to pick six, six exercises, uh, regardless of what exercise physiologist or physical therapist you would ask, you wouldn't expect ankle extension and elbow flexion to be in it. Yeah, probably not. You could probably swap the lat pull down for something like a chin up or a chin up assist yep. and hit both your lats and your biceps that way. So, I mean, you, you could have picked some better exercises, but I think the moral of this story is that you can have some pretty poor programming, but if it's done consistently, and I did double check, yep. um, this was an eight week time period mm. training three times per week. So essentially a whole body workout three times a week, which is kind of a common theme that you see in yep. a lot of like high school athletics programs because you know, those kids can respond to a lot of volume. And in these studies, even like adults, if somebody is recovering well enough, then they can respond to that volume, especially if it's a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And here's the chart looking at the total changes um, in body fat and lean mass pre and post training intervention. Mm-hmm. And there was a control group here. It really wasn't clear reading through the study what that was, but I assume this was individuals that just, they said, keep training like you always do because they actually lost a little bit of fat and gained a little bit of lean body mass. So control group, very small changes. It was, they went from 20.3 to 19.9% body fat and their lean mass, they gained 0.3 kilos of lean mass. So less than a pound of lean mass in the same eight week period. Um, how about the, let's call it CrossFit group. How did they do compared to traditional strength training? The CrossFit group did great. Um, they gained a surprising amount of lean mass. Let's see, they changed 1.2 and they lost uh, 0.8 pounds of fat and lean mass respectively. So they also achieved body recomposition. What I thought was that right. yeah, what I thought was interesting here because this is your circuit training here is that they actually started off significantly leaner and heavier than your traditional strength training group. 
So your CrossFitters went from 20.1% body fat down to 18.6. Whereas your traditional strength training, they started off a little bit, you know, fatter body percentage wise, you know, 21.8 down to 20.7. So the, mm-hmm. the circuit training seemed to be better for fat loss, even though they were leaner at the beginning of the study. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. They also started off with slightly more absolute lean body mass, about three pounds more lean body mass before and about four pounds lean body mass after. Yeah, so, I think that that's actually kilo. So they were substantially oh, larger oh, right. than, their, than their counterparts. We did some of these conversions, but forgive us if like from time to time we say pounds or kilos, but we'll put these charts up on the screen for everyone yep. to look at as well. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, so what about women that are trained? So this was kind of an interesting population of trained women because uh, for one they were only 21 years old um, but they were um, aspiring female physique athletes so mm. presumably female bodybuilders of some sort enhanced not reported this is something that we can't see because it's behind a paywall um, I would presume at 21 they shouldn't be enhanced these you know, just barely out of high school at that pep- point pep- peptides peptides arms yeah protons it's like what ryan humiston said he wishes that there was peptides like those around like mk677 when he was 20. i thought michael hearn said that michael hearn also said that okay um anyway um but this was we digress a, a little bit <laughs> this was an eight-week time period so to your point Anytime you have a group of like trained individuals versus individuals who have never trained, there is going to be a higher penetrance of like performance enhancing drug use. I think it's like, um, depending on the paper you look at, one in 10 to one in four people in a commercial gym in the men um, are going to use something in the past or be using something currently. So keep that in mind. Yes, peptides count. Yes, arms count. Yes, if you did, if you played high school football and took. Um, GNC supplements with superdrawl or whatnot, or methyltrend, and yes, that also counts. Um, and some oral contraceptives arguably could count as well. But anyway, back to the study, they compared two groups, high protein and low protein. I suppose you could also make the case that for enhanced athletes, a very high protein diets, just because of the nitrogen retention benefit could make more of a difference. Yeah, and this is actually a, a good comparison of high protein versus low protein. We'll, we'll talk about another study later, which I thought was not a particularly good, uh, a good separation of high and low protein. Nope. But this one, there's actually a substantial difference. So high protein was a touch over one pound per gram, so 2.5 grams for, per kilogram. And then low protein was 0.9 grams per kilogram. And I think that's actually pretty close to the RDA, yeah, if I'm a little bit sketchy on the kilogram to pound conversions, but I think that's about what the RDA lands at. So not a lot of protein intake by like our standards or athlete standards. Yeah. Um, And it's one kilogram to two, or sorry, one pound to 2.2 kilograms. And the average weight looks like it was 134 pounds. 
So I guess um, the takeaway from this result would be, uh, you know, it's two different scenarios. If you have a group that's at 130 pounds total versus a group that's at 260 pounds total, just doubling the protein will not get you the same result if you double the body weight. Yeah, that's true. I think looking at the lean mass or even there's some like thinking of like ideal lean body mass and yep. I'm not an incredible stickler on the like high protein. You know, people certainly want to get the best results out of what they're aiming for, like the work they're putting in. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the low protein group here, I'll, I'll run through those results because they improve their body composition in a time period of eight weeks. So it's not like you're just spinning your wheels, exercising without eating yep. enough protein. They gained um, a little over a pound of muscle, 0.6 kilograms, and they lost 0.7 kilograms of fat. So the scale did not move for these individuals, but they did recomp- they had some body recomposition in a pretty short time frame. Yep. Now that was augmented by the high protein group. They gained 2.1 kilograms of muscle. So that's almost four, four and a half pounds. Pretty substantial that's a lot. Yeah, four and a half pounds of muscle and two pounds of fat. Yeah, lost 1.1 kilos of fat. So the scale moved two pounds for them, but they would probably look markedly different from the beginning of the study to the end of the study, depending on their body fat at the beginning, which again, we don't have access to. But that's quite a bit for eight weeks. And perhaps these people just weren't eating a lot of protein at baselines. Likely. As you mentioned, they get more of that nitrogen retention. So it's Looks like more lean body mass, but it is kind of exaggerating the true lean tissue that they're accruing. Yeah, um, you could even make the case for a 20-year-old female, 130 pounds, as you mentioned. Uh, very few of them are getting enough protein in the diet. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon has some great info about this. A lot of it's specific to females, but um, high pro- the benefits of a high-protein diet are not necessarily specific to females. One good biomarker to look at is blood urea nitrogen. If your BUN is not a bit on the higher end, then you're not breaking down a lot of protein into urea. Um, And obviously that's not a hard and fast case. Um, Also track your protein and know your protein goal. Um, But that is a sign in many cases, I see a high BUN and these are individuals that consistently eat a lot of protein. Yeah, very common in an athletic population or a population that weight trains or eats more protein. Uh, And one reason that this could have been kind of a a weird looking study on a result standpoint is that it was not DEXA data, um, but it doesn't say specifically what type of data it was. That's true. And a study of trained individuals, both men and women this time, and I I made a note that this was a BODPOD study database instead of DEXA, Um, but basically they had a, you know, normal protein intake and a high protein intake. And I took a screenshot of this chart because it looks to me like they tried to control for age and years of training, but didn't do a great job of that. looks like some pretty big differences to me. Yeah, the high protein group was significantly younger, but also almost paradoxically had twice as many years of training. Yeah, about five years of training and about 23 years old versus the normal protein group which was about 25 and had only been training about two and a half years. So just kind of keep that in mind as we're looking at their results. Um, this was their split, which is more like a traditional bodybuilding split. I would, I would pick something like this over the 
six exercise split that we went over earlier. So I thought it'd be nice to put this one up for people to see. Basically, they picked three of these exercises for chest, three for shoulders, you know, two for triceps, four for back and so forth. People can read yep. through and um, I assume there was some rotation of these things. Mm-hmm. And then when we go down to the results here, we'll take a look at their body weight, fat-free mass, fat mass, and body fat percent pre and post training. So what does it look like? Uh, was normal protein, as they call it, or high protein superior? Um, let's see. The normal protein is on the left side. Post and pre and the high protein. Po- oh, here's the pre and post. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the high protein also started at a lower body fat, 18%. They went to 15.9%, which looks significantly better than 20% to 19.6%. So even with a start, like a lower starting body fat percentage, um, high protein is certainly superior for losing body fat percentage. Fat-free mass, um, I guess, as you would expect, the high protein group, which had five years rather than two and a half years on average of training, started at 61 kgs and then ended at 62.9 kgs, but a pretty high uh, air bar or confidence interval. The fat-free mass was 59.6 to 60. 1.1. So they actually so the gained of, yeah. the exact same amount of lean body mass, but the high the, protein group did that while getting leaner. It looks like the um, they actually maintained weight, whereas the normal protein actually gained uh, 1.3 kilos there, going from 74.7 to 76. So I think it's impressive that the high protein group, despite being like more thoroughly trained, so lifting weights for five years about, was able to continue to make this progress and you know, mm-hmm. cut down over 2% body fat and put on, you know, a little over three pounds of lean body mass in that time period. Yeah. Those would be the confounders is that you would have less newbie gains in the higher protein group. And then you would also have um, a harder time putting on lean body mass, given that you are losing lean body fat or uh, body fat percentage. So if you told the high protein group to also increase their calories, then they likely would have gained more lean body mass. Yeah. And now let's look at another protein comparison. This one's down at the bottom, but we'll, we'll circle back to some of the other ones that I think are interesting. So this one considered low protein to be 0.9 grams per kilogram, so basically the RDA, mm-hmm. and they called a high-protein diet 1.2 grams per kilogram. It's not very different. No, it, and I think that's why you didn't really see much separation here. I mean, it looks like there was still a slight edge to having more protein, but um, we also didn't get a lot of good like anthropometric Uh, data from this one. We just got basically the body fat percentage and then their body weight, not a breakdown of how much of that was lean body mass. So takeaway from this one could be um, it at least doesn't look bad for the high protein group. Um, But it's hard to say if this is a significant feather in the hat of high protein for um, anybody who is beginning resistance training. Yeah. And some people would laugh if you said that, you know, eat high protein 1.2 grams per kilo yeah so 
A good rule of thumb that I use, um, if you're at a reasonable body fat percentage, you know, below probably 35%, is one, uh, one gram per pound of body weight, which would be 2.2 per kilo. Yeah, and even if you aim for that and you get 80% of that intake, that's pretty good. So mm -hmm. I think setting that as a goal um, is great for anyone who's in the beginner to intermediate category. Now, if you're someone who is, let's say, an advanced lifter, you're fairly lean, mm -hmm. then you may have to push that threshold even a bit more if you're primarily in a you know a strength sport or bodybuilding. It's a little bit different for endurance athletes. They mm -hmm. tend to do better with more carbohydrates. Um, but let's take a look at lean body mass loss on different types of diets. So this is really interesting in the context of the, the GLP ones. And I, you, I know you and Dr. Martin did a really great overview of this and lean body mass and sort of the confounders and control groups. But uh, it actually looks remarkably similar to what someone would lose on just Pick, pick any diet here, a very low calorie diet, a low carb diet, a low fat diet, a high fiber diet. They're remarkably similar. 25, 24% body fat loss uh, or body weight loss from lean mass. And then about three quarters of it is body fat mass. The one here that's a little bit different is the high protein diet. And they kept you know, they lost about 90% of the weight is body fat in those cases. Yeah, this is very impressive given that adipose tissue is part lean body mass. And yes, you can lose just some of the fat particles from your adipose tissue as it becomes more metabolically active. But about 10% of adipose tissue is indeed lean body mass. So if you just cut out a whole bunch of your adipose tissue, you'll see that you lose some lean body mass. So 90% and 10% is pretty impressive. Um, it's also interesting to compare this to other studies because the general rule of thumb is that as you lose weight, if you're losing a significant amount of weight, about one third of that is lean body mass. So all the different diet groups in that study have beat the 33, 67%. Yeah, and I think it's interesting when you look at, um, there was one study that was actually linked in that um, review article talking about uh, meal replacement specifically, people that are going on very low calorie diets. That's mm -hmm. the sort of umbrella that this one fell under. So this was individuals who are, you know, morbidly obese, which is a term that sounds like from our discussion earlier is going to be going away at some point. Um, but basically what that means is someone is at least 100 pounds overweight or their BMI is over 40 for right now. And these individuals, um, they actually had better results than if they were taking Munjaro or if they were taking Ozempic or Wegovy or any of these GLP ones. Um, mm -hmm. 12 weeks, they were able to lose 15 kilograms of fat mass, which is well over 30 pounds of body fat. And they lost zero lean body mass. So they weren't starting in a particularly great place, but they were on a higher protein, very low calorie diet. Um, 1120 calories. So these people probably didn't feel great. Um, but if you're morbidly obese, you probably don't feel great to begin with. So I would say by the end of this 12 week period, they probably felt substantially better. They probably were quite hungry, but they did substantially improve their health in a short amount of time. And of course, this was done with uh, medical supervision and not clear what method of body composition was used. But when you have someone in this situation, 
it's less important whether they're getting a DEXA or if they're using bioimpedance because it's going to get you in the ballpark. Yep. When you're on an extreme like this, you're susceptible to overestimating the amount of body fat or underestimating the amount of body fat. So, you know, do your resistance training, get protein in, adjust the calories. And it really depends on someone's starting point. Do I think someone who's already at 10% body fat could do the same thing? Probably not because your body is, the leaner you get, the harder it is to hold on to that lean body mass. And there's a lot of variation from person to person. So one person may be able to hold quite a bit of lean mass at 10%. Someone else may have a hard time maintaining or adding any more lean body mass if they're to 10% body fat. Yeah, I think those are great takeaways. Another takeaway is GLP-1s, including semaglutide or terzepatide, are not evil. They are just tools, and they do very closely mimic the loss in lean body mass that's achieved by very low-calorie diets. They essentially enable VLCDs to be uh, done more easily. It's also well known among the obesity medicine community that VLCDs should be physician supervised, supervised at a clinic with knowledgeable providers. And I think that that could make the case that if you're on a VLCD with a GLP-1, shouldn't that also be supervised by knowledgeable providers? For example, perhaps not at clinics which are exclusively med spas. Um, not that you, like obviously we do aesthetics and we do obesity medicine as well, but uh, I just think it's a good example that um, a lot of the um, the questions and the uh, I guess criticisms of GLP ones that are rightfully brought up could be you can say the exact same thing about any VLCD. Yeah, and I would argue that you have the potential for less side effects on a VLCD, which. Med spas don't seem to be prescribing VLCDs to people. Why is uh, that? But for whatever reason that may be, like a VLCD is probably safer than handing someone a syringe of semaglutide and then you know, see in three months. So Yeah. Is that 0.01 or 0.1? Doesn't matter. Watch a YouTube video. Yeah. There, were, there was a study we may talk about uh, secret shoppers you know, going in and um, one of the topics was like, how are these people being trained on injection technique when they're prescribed injectable medications? And in almost every case, it was a, a YouTube video. So it's something that we may cover more in the future. I suspect it's probably a similar process for you know med spas where time is money. Yeah, um, efficiency can be a good thing and can it can also be detrimental. So even though we are an individualized medicine clinic, and we say individualized all the time in our podcast episodes and in our patient visits, um, having some structure to the program can be helpful. And um, depending on what you need, just keep in mind that medications and supplements and peptides, which are just really medications, they are just tools to help you achieve a goal. And if you're not concurrently making a lifestyle intervention to make that sustainable, to get away from the pit of quicksand, then just having a crane like semaglutide pull you out of the quicksand and then drop you back off when you stop paying your monthly fee, um, that you're just going to sink right back. Might in. hit that quicksand harder and sink faster. Yeah. Um, and be demoralized. So it's like uh, pharmacologically induced yo-yo dieting. Which is why people should just take them forever, is the messaging that I'm hearing in obesity medicine. Yeah. 
And at the same time, um, they're one of our favorite tools. We're definitely not in the camp that everybody should take them forever. There's a lot of individuals with, with diabetes that probably will be well served taking them forever, yeah. probably just to keep them off insulin, but everybody's at a different spot. Um, so yeah, hopefully that's a nice little tangent into GLP ones from this podcast. Yeah. I think this was good. And uh, I think I'm going to add more ankle extensions into my personal split because they look to be really effective for lean body mass. It was a sixth of that entire programming and those people did put on mass. Yeah. Uh, the second study also had calf raises as part of their, one of the five choices for, for leg training. So that being said, uh, I usually just add in calf raises partly for aesthetic purposes. Um, you can make your own decision to help you develop a balanced approach to health. But that being said, in general, you might want to consider more compound movements just because a program works doesn't mean it's optimal, but just because there is something that's an optimal program for you doesn't mean that another exercise program or another diet that you can actually adhere to, that's going to bring you results when you do it consistently. Yeah, I think that's a great place to wrap up. So thank you for your time. Thank you for watching and may God bless you with health and happiness. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.